Welcome to the Poetic Resurrection Podcast, where we explore perceptions. How self-reflecting questions can give you a better understanding of self. I'm your host, Sonia Iris Lozada. Stay tuned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Poetic Resurrection. Today, we have Terry Kehu. He is a founding member of Lamp Black, a magazine and literary organization. He is a translator and director of programs and partnerships for poets and writers. Welcome. Thank you, Sonia. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. My mind is like going like, what can I ask him? I want to ask you about publishing. I want to ask you about how you became a translator. I want to ask more about Lamp Black. Where would you like to start? Oh, man, there's so many places to start. I, you know, I guess we can start with the sort of literary nonprofit world that I, I find myself uh, spending a considerable amount of my time these days as the director of programs and partnerships at Poets and Writers. Been there since November. Previously, I was at the Center for Fiction, a literary nonprofit based in Brooklyn, uh, managing programs there. You know, I sort of ended up in this field after MIMFA, you know, looking for, you know, looking for opportunities where I could stay connected to the literary world. Mm-hmm. You know, so oftentimes for many people that, you know, if, if they've gotten their MFA or if they're interested in sort of staying connected to the literary world while they're writing, you know, it's either working in publishing, working for a literary magazine or a literary nonprofit. I ended up in the literary nonprofit world. An opportunity opened up in Brooklyn, where I lived after moving back from New Jersey for my MFA. And yeah, I, I started working at the center back in 2019. I was there for about three years. And then after that, moved on to, to poets and writers. But it's, it's been a, you know, an opportunity to, to stay connected to the literary world, but also to continue learning. You know, one of the things you don't you don't learn a lot about while you're pursuing your MFA or if, or if you even don't even have that privilege of going for an MFA, if you're just sort of learning about the publishing world as you go, is, you know, you don't really know what it's like, to, you know, what that other side is like, what the publishing world is like, what the literary world is like. You know, it's been four years of sort of um, gaining access and having a clear understanding of what the editor's work life looks like, you know, and, and how that impacts the writer you know, what the agent's work life looks like and how that impacts the writer. So being able to make those connections as a writer who one day hopefully will have an agent, will have an editor, will have a publisher, knowing how things work on that end, you know, who might be written about in a magazine. So, you know, sort of learning those, those relationships between the writer and those other very sort of crucial pieces of the literary ecosystem. It's been invaluable. And like I said, it's just, it's something that, you know, it's, it's information that's sort of hard to come by, but I've had four more years of education working in the literary nonprofit world. And it's been, it's been wonderful. Yeah. Because I took that course, it was publishing 101 with poets and writers. Yes. How to get your writing published, which is now mapping the maze. We launched the second edition just ended this week. It's called now mapping the maze. You actually have an official name now, but yes, I, I remember you being in that. Yeah, was that. it the same? Is it the same thing that repeated, or same thing that repeated? Yeah, it's just that now we finally actually have a uh, we've branded it with a name, so it's called mapping the maze. Ah, oh. uh, 
Yeah. No, that was yeah. super informative. I had like no idea because I self-publish. Mm -hmm. I I'm the kind of person I have to write it and I have to get it out there. You know, I just have to get it out there, like writing one thing. And then they say, well, it's going to take three to six months to get back to you. I'm like, no, I could get that out now. <laughs> and I, you know, and I know that self-publishing has a bad rap because so many people just throw things out there that are really not good quality. But there's a lot of also I find self-publishing who are just people that hire an editor and hire a book. You know, you, you job everything out. You don't do everything yourself because of that. And those I find that are better quality. But yeah, I think that going sometimes through an actual publisher, it is more polished. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, there are definitely, you know, if you don't want to wait, then self-publish. You know, I don't, you know, the thing with the writing is no one is actually really, waiting <laughs> you know unless you've signed a contract and at that point someone is actually waiting for your manuscript but no one is until you've signed a contract no one is waiting for that thing that you're working on i think the the, the great thing about self-publishing is if you know just allows you to get your work out there on your own terms and i think that's important you know to be able to do things on your own terms and there are also advantages of you know going through a publisher you know they definitely have you know, obviously the brand, you know, and to sort of put behind an author or a title, you know, but they also just have the resources to, to push a work out there, to, to, to get it on the shelves, to get it in front of the, you know, critics who will be reviewing it too. They're able to do things that can raise platform for a book and for an author. So those things are, you know, not to be sort of counted out, but, you know, you can also self-publish and if you have the funds to be at minimum, obviously get, you know, someone to look over your work, like a developmental editor to, you know, make sure that what you're putting out there is, is readable, you know, and it is. Because I hire people. I know that I'm, I'm not, I polish it as much as I can. And then I give it to them. Yeah. And it always comes, it goes back and forth after that. And with social media as well, you know, it, 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 that's another avenue that gives people who are publishing independently to make a name for themselves you know it's, it's not even what it was five years ago or 10 years ago social media you can really sort of you can promote yourself out there you know in a way that you couldn't before you know beyond just having a website it's just having followers on social media and you know mm -hmm. it's it's a very useful tool which i don't use but you know i've, I've definitely seen right i use it and i um for people that are out there and self-publish i just Instead of being on top of it all the time, trying to get social media out, I just pay for an ad, <laughs> yeah. have them do the work for me. And you could do it pretty inexpensively. Yeah. Because I think some people that are writers are afraid to approach publishing companies are afraid to get out there because I find that many writers are kind of like introverts. So for them to get out there and do things, it's more difficult than someone that's already outgoing. Definitely, yeah. So if someone was new, let's say new writer, they have a book, they're pretty proud of it. What is the first steps they should do? That's a good question. You know, I, I think I mean, there are a lot of different directions I think you can take. It's always hard to tell when, when something is actually done, but, you know, you definitely want to make sure that, you know, you've had enough eyes on it before you start really sending it out. So I think having trusted readers, 
Mm-hmm. I think that's very important. You know, having people you know, you can rely on really because it is it is a it's a big ask. So you know, definitely having people in your corner who you have a relationship with, you've been sort of going back and forth editing each other's work, maybe, but someone to have another eye on your work, I think, is important. And you know, and, and I think once it's ready, you know, you want to start, and maybe even before it's quote unquote ready, but you definitely want to start maybe approaching agents you know, or even before then, or simultaneously, maybe before then, but start looking into contests. You know, there are lots of contests out there that allow you to, you know, if you're writing a novel, for example, maybe submit an excerpt. Because editors and agents, they look at those things. You know, uh, they look at, you know, who's won a contest or who's, you know, maybe even was a finalist or, because sometimes even if you're not the winner, they, they will publish maybe you know, the top five, you know, people, you know, they'll publish their work. And, and a lot of editors and agents, they keep track of those things because you may not be the winner, but maybe you came in, you were a runner up or you were just an honorable mention, but it's so, writing is so, everyone has a different taste, you know, so something that may have come in third place might be an editor's or an agent's, you know, flavor. They might be like, oh, I actually like that one as well, you know, mm-hmm. or I like that better than even the actual story that won first place or whatnot. So I think getting your work out there helps. I would even say before you even lock in a contract or get an agent, because those things help, you know, when you're pitching a book to say, you know, you had your work published here, it won this contest, or I did this residency, I got this prize, I got this fellowship. Those are things that, you know, you can put in your pitch letter, you know, to say that I won such and such prize. I, I had this fellowship at such and such residency because it shows that someone else is putting a, has put a stamp on your work, a stamp of approval. Mm-hmm. The further up you go, the, the more of an investment, you know, for example, an agent is going to put in your work, publisher is going to put in your work. So if someone else has said is worth my time, you know, whether it's a, a magazine or a small prize or a contest, it signals to an editor or, you know, if you're going the sort of small press route, you don't necessarily always need an agent. But also it signals to the agent that, you know, other people who I respect, you know, other publications, editors at these publications have put a stamp of approval. So it's worth taking a look at or maybe taking a stab at. So, mm-hmm. yeah, getting your word out there, doing readings, you know, you never know who's, who's in the audience, who's, you know, listening to you read a story that may not have even been published. So finding different ways of getting your work out there, whether it's through readings, whether it's through publications. That helps, but you can also just submit it, you know, and without having to do, having done any of those things, and people do get agents without having had their work out there. You know, that's that's also that's doable. Yeah, I, I would say those are routes that I would recommend. I find certain writers don't fit in a category. Yeah, it's more difficult for them to get published. It's like, where do we put you? This is like self-help sci-fi. I mean, where do we put you? I find that BIPOC people have more of that problem. Same thing happened with me with acting. When I first started acting, nobody knew where to put me. Yeah. So that I, what do you say to something like that? Do you find a press that's more sensitive to what you do? I think you do. I think it's, you know, ultimately, I think the reason why we're looking for publishers to, to have the book ultimately sold, you know, to have the book ultimately land on the shelf. So I think it's important to know where in that bookstore, in bookstores, where your work fits. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately your work is going to be marketed, you know, 
salespeople who we often don't talk a lot about in the publishing world, but there are people out there who don't work in offices. They're going, they're making calls, sending emails, going door to door to bookstores, selling your book in a store, you know, putting and, and finding a place for your book on a shelf. So I think it's important to know where you fit in the marketplace because it is ultimately a marketplace. You know, there's, mm-hmm. it, it's a business, you know, whether it's what, what genre do you fit in? You know, who are other comparable writers out there? Um, because we, at, at a certain point, you know, we do fit somewhere for sales and marketing purposes. That's, that's just the, the formula, the rubrics that they use, you know. So it's important to also know that that's, that's a thing, you know. So let me, get that, let me get that ironed out first. Is this a memoir? Is this an autobiography? Is this a hybrid text? Is it literary fiction? Is it genre fiction? Like, what exactly... And then what is it? What is this about? You know, in, in one sentence. Your log line. Exactly. You, you have to know that's what they're ultimately going to use to sell your book. Once you figure that out, you can reject it all, <laughs> and then, you know, and then and and find, you know, because I, it, it's it's there are lots of works out there that fit in multiple categories. You know, and who wants to be pigeonholed? So, you know, you you can write something that also fits into four other boxes, but. Um, it's, I think it's important to know that box that is ultimately going to help you get your work on the shelf. You're right. Where I think writers want to end up. And same thing goes with, you know, literary magazine is, you know, what it's important to be knowledgeable of different magazines or where have some of the, you know, stories or poems and, or writers that I really like, where have they been a great fit? Because if, I, if their work resonates with me or it feels like very comparable to my work, that might be a place for me to start. So, so fit is important and knowing your fit is, I, I think is, it's key. But then once you figure that out, like I said, you can just, you've done that homework. You can reject it all or just, or dismantle it, you know, and, and, and um, you know, once you've made a name for yourself, I think maybe sometimes that stuff doesn't matter as much, but definitely I think when you're getting started, it's important to identify, you know, like you said, your, make sure you've got your log line. Where, where is this first book? Because you only get to do it once that first time. That debut is coming out. You only get to be a debut author once. Um, so it's, I think it's important to get it at right. And if you're successful, even not successful, you know, but once you've mastered that, I think it makes it easier, I would think. I'm not speaking from experience, but I would. <laughs> I actually know I'm doing a workshop. One of the writers there who came to speak, he wrote, like, if I remember it co- correctly, like a sci-fi thriller kind mm-hmm. of thing but they put it into a different category because it could fit there and it became a, a like a bestseller because they marketed it to the an area that is not so that doesn't have that many people like popular yeah it's it's not like you know general sci-fi that you could get lost in that so it, it they got more specific about it and it's a good book. He's well known for that. I wish I could remember the name of it, but he it's the categories. Yeah. Okay. So we got a little bit, anything you want to add more about publishing? No, not really. You know, it's, it's, um, there, there are a lot of great, a lot of great resources out there about, you know, learning about publishing. Obviously Poets and Writers Magazine is, is a great resource. And there's a recent article in the New York Times Magazine I'm drawing a blank on the on the title, but it's very recent. Uh, Lisa Lucas was was uh, was the 
publisher of, I think, Pantheon uh, was featured in it. But yeah, there's, there's been a lot written about, you know, sort of the, about publishing, um, the state of publishing, especially as it you know, pertains to, you know, publishing writers of color, publishing, you know, writers who have been underpublished. I definitely recommend, you know, reading those articles. This article in the New York Times Magazine that featured Lisa Lucas, uh, was, it was a good read. So I want to like switch over and find out how you became a translator. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's an interesting, I think, story. Um, you know, I, I like to say I've been translating my whole life. I grew up bilingual, you know, French and English were, and my parents' native Fefe were sort of languages that were spoken in the home. So when you hear multiple languages, you're, you're you know, from a young age, I think you're constantly translating in your head, trying to figure out, well, what does that, you know, what does that mean in this language? You know, it's, 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 a, it's a fun exercise. But, you know, as far as literary translation is concerned, I came to it about maybe, I don't know, about 10 years ago. Actually, a, a bit before then, I did, in undergrad, I, I did take a class in, in translation. It was more sort of applied translation, sort of like, you know, like business or medicine or, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. But I had the opportunity my, my senior year of college many years ago to do some translation work for, it was part research, part translation. It was mostly translation for Professor Robin Kelly, who was um, writing the autobiography of Thelonious Monk. He needed a whole bunch of text to be translated from French into English. And I had a friend at the time who was also doing some research for him, and she told me about this opportunity. And I thought, sure, I, I, I think I can handle this. Um, and that wasn't really literary translation. It was primarily translation for the sake of making sure that these research materials for him were tr- translated into English. So that was my first foray, I think, in translation, was translating somewhere between 150 and 20 words for, for Dr. Kelly. And then many years later, I was, I was in Cameroon, where my family's from, visiting, working at a school there, coming out of the school one day, and I stopped by this vendor, this, this man who had a stand outside of the school, and you know, he sold you know, materials for school, pens and pencils and notebooks and he also sold books. You know, I had no idea that he sold books. I never noticed the books. But when I was close to the stand, I saw he had books. You know, I think up until that point, I had only read one, one book by a Cameroonian author. So I was like, this is an opportunity for me to read. And that, and it was, that, that book was in English. But to read um, more books by Cameroonian authors. And so that day, I, there were two books on the table that jumped out at me. And one of those books was by a writer named Francis Bebe. The name was familiar to me. Francis is a very well-known, or he was, um, he's no longer a well-known musician, really prolific musician, but he also happened to be a writer, which I had no idea. I grew up knowing about Francis as, as, a, as a musician, but had no idea he was a writer, so I was really curious. The book was called Trois Petits Sireurs, which translated in English into Three Little Shoe Shiners. It was a really short book about 60 pages. I'd only brought one book with me on that trip. It was going to be three months, so I thought to myself, I need more books. And so I got these two books, and I went home that night, and I read Francis's book, 
think I read it in two nights. My first reaction was, this needs to be a play. That was my initial reaction after reading the book, because it has a very sort of Baroquean feel. It's a book, it's, it's sort of set into five really small chapters, so very Baroquean, sort of similar to the five-act plays in, in Baroque theater. So that was my first reaction, this needs to be a play. And then I kept thinking like, well, this also needs to be able to be read in English. Like this, this needs to be in English. And I wasn't even necessarily thinking about literary translation. I just, to me, it was like, this, this book needs to be appear in English. And I wasn't thinking about literary translation because that's not even a term for me that existed. Like literary translation. I had read lots of translated literature, obviously growing up at school. No one really talks about translators, you know. So when you read a book in translation, for example, if you read a Russian author, you know, in English, or if you read a, you know, a Mexican author in English, uh, or a Spanish author, a German author, you know, one of those classical texts, when you read those books in school, you, you, you know the author, you know the original author, the author who wrote in the original language, but never, at least not in my experience, I remember ever a teacher being like, this book was translated by, you know, because it's just not, it's not something that, it's not a way that texts are introduced by teachers, and it's also not a way that even the publishing world looks at translation. You know, so translators are rarely featured on the cover of, of, of books, you know, translated by that. And that's starting to change a lot. There's been a lot of movement there. But, you know, if you go back 50 years or 30 years, it's, that, that wasn't the case. Anyway, all that to say is that I wasn't thinking about literary translation, just that this book needs to be in English. I would love for people who don't speak French to be able to read this in English. And so I started translating the book, you know, about, about a year later, and I found myself really enjoying what I was doing. But, you know, I think one of, one of the sort of driving factors for me in translation was, you know, or like my purpose there was really the purpose that I was in Cameroon to begin with, which was really to, I'd had this burning question for many years growing up, which was, you know, what was it like for my parents growing up in Cameroon? In reading these texts, so, you know, I read a lot. I've, you know, I've read since then lots of books written by Cameroon authors. And, and in that book by Debe, I was, like, learning a lot about what it was like, you know, to, or, you know, it's a fiction. It's obvious it's fiction, but, you know, good fiction it reads like nonfiction, <laughs> you know. Yes. Um, and so the book was, was, it was painting a, a picture for me that I, answering things that I'd, I'd wanted answers for for a long time and I could not get from my parents. And so for me, really, translation, you know, and I focus a lot on Francophone African writers, but, you know, I'm obviously very invested in translating works by Cameroon writers because I ultimately want to translate books and those books to be published so that people who are growing up in the United States and who, you know, have similar backgrounds that I do, you know, so... You know, parents are from a French-speaking background, maybe Francophone Africa. You know, they want to learn a little bit about where their parents were from, you know, or this or this place that is is in, in many ways a part of who they are, you know, but they may not have access to it in English. So I see myself as a bridge, you know, to sort of making that happen. And I think there's opportunity for many different populations to, to make that happen, you know, in this country, you know, people of this is a country of immigrants, you know, and, and I think there's opportunities for young people, people of all ages, really, to, to dive into translation and to 
to take on translation as a means to bringing into English works that say something about, you know, sort of where they're from. And I think, you know, I think, I think writers do it in a way that, you know, film or television can't do it. You know, there's something about fiction or, or poetry. It captures something that, you know, film can't do. It captures I, the flavor of the culture. Because my heritage is Puerto Rican, so I have a lot of books in Spanish. I'm not a translator, but I read them in Spanish because they show the history of the culture. And so, yeah, it is good to be. And translation is a major skill. You have to capture the essence of that writer in the translation. You do, you know, and, and it's a lot of fun. One of the things I've had to learn is I, I need to, you know, when I'm working on a specific author, for example, Bibi, I had to read his other books, you know, just to really, you know, and his style is, is pretty consistent, I would say, you know, throughout, you know, his works. But it's, you know, so it's like I had to read multiple books to really get the essence of, of his tone and his style and his humor and his wit, you know, because it really is sort of like you're, I feel like I'm constantly in conversation with him when I'm writing, you know, and I, like I said, he's no longer, so I don't have access to him, but that's helped me a lot, which is reading as many of his works that I can just to really get a sense of, you know, his, his tone. And it's, it's difficult, but it's a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. And it's made me also just a, a sharper writer of just a, of English, you know, just having to be really sort of selective of words that I, that I choose to use to, to represent a specific feeling or just to represent a specific thing in French, like how do I translate that into English? So it's made me really, I'd say it's definitely improved my vocabulary, you know, and I'm an English speaker, but it, it really does make you focus on getting the word down right. Sometimes there are multiple world words that can express something and you have to land on one word. It's a challenge, but it's, it's a lot of fun. So I use a dictionary a lot. You know? <laughs> Um, you know, but it's also made me just more aware about, you know, structure when it comes to fiction and, and pacing and tone and, you know, all the different sort of elements of a work of fiction. It's really made me more aware of those things. And a lot of fiction writers actually used to be, you know, to be a fiction writer and, and translator at the same time is it's, from what I've learned is it's something that was very common. You know, it was pretty common for writers to also translate. And to me that, and, and, it, and it makes sense now because I see why that would make, why writers would do that. It's because it does in many ways make you, because when you're writing your own fiction, it's like you're really just, you're into your own work. You know, it's like you're, that's why you need editors. That's why you need someone to take a look and, and make sure that, you know, what you're doing, you know, that you're not sort of losing, losing the reader. So obviously when you're translating, you're reading something that's a finished product, you're translating something that's a finished product. Um, I, I would say in many ways, you're, you're kind of rewriting it. But so it does allow you to see what a finished product looks like and to work from that. We're segueing into Lamp Black. What is sure. Lamp Black? And how does that work with like what you do as a translator, what you do as a writer? How does that work together? Lamp Black is it's a literary nonprofit. Happy to say we just got our 501c3 status about a couple months ago, so that was really exciting. But 
Lamp Black is the, the product of numerous conversations between me and a few other folks, uh, a group of folks who started out as about 21 writers. So it came together to um, start this organization that is committed to the advancement of black literature. So what we do is we, we publish a magazine every year. We've published, published one magazine that came out last year. Our, our founders issue of Lamp Black came out for last year. It's available on our website still, I believe. Um, and we have another issue coming out this year um, in October as well. So we publish a literary magazine featuring black writers, um, nonfiction, fiction, translation, poetry. So we publish it all. And we also have a literary program. So we have a Inky Bulb, which is our, is that on Facebook or TikTok? I think it's on TikTok. So one of our Lamp Black members is interviewing a bookstagrammer. So, and we're just, you know, they talk about various topics, you know. Um, and we also have, this one is on Facebook. It's a, it's like a, a writer interview series. So one of our Lamp Black members um, interviews a, a writer. We exist because, you know, we, we recognize that there's a lot of work that, that needs to be done out there to promote black literature. To us, it, it, just, it just, just seemed like an, it was a no-brainer. You know, and, and I think, you know, obviously, the, the, the times were ripe. We got started sort of in late 2019, and 2020 came around, and, you know, we all know what happened then. And there's sort of, there's been an explosion in, in every sector, you know, making sure that there not just representation, but I would say accurate representation, making sure that the people doing the work are, you know, sort of reflect the people that they are also trying to put an emphasis on or to, to, to highlight. So we just, we solely publish works by black authors. Yeah, it's been uh, an exciting endeavor and we're, we're growing. You know, I think having this, you know, nonprofit status now is going to allow us to raise some funds, you know, we're really, really excited to um, we launch also new programs um, in the years to come. So, do you have Black authors international or just U.S.? Yeah, international. So, I to a point like we're we're global. You know, we are we have members in in various parts of the uh, the world as well. Korea, South Africa, obviously in the U.S. In our next issue, we'll be featuring writers, I believe, from. Definitely not just the U.S. I can say that, you know. Okay. Definitely so not. it is an international organization. It's international, and I, I would, you know, I would say, you know, Black is sort of global. If you're doing it, yeah, I can't imagine it doing it other any other way, especially in literature. You know, there's uh, the opportunity for sort of having, you know, the, the Black Black experience. Definitely, it's, it's a global story. It really is, and and you can see the nuances of how each culture advanced. Yeah. I studied music and much of the black experience from Africa, the communication was the drums. And until people caught up with them, like, oh no, you can't have the drums. <laughs> <laughs> that was a way of organizing each other, you know? But yeah, no, I, I think that that's a beautiful thing to do. And also, it introduces people that wouldn't normally read that, you know, like I was reading something the other day, and it was about the hard times that they grew up with, but yet it was done in a light way, because sometimes if you come across too heavy, someone of a different culture isn't going to understand it. 
Mm-hmm. It came across as like, but wow, I mean, the experiences of growing up in a, in a tough neighborhood, I mean, I could relate to somewhat of that because I grew up in a tough neighborhood myself. To see the different, I mean, this could be a neighborhood that's right next door to somebody and the experiences are totally different. Yeah. So I think that something like that is a good thing to have. I think it introduces many people to what is actually out there, but the true experience of it, not the, what people think it is. Because mm-hmm. I find that is what they think it is versus what it actually is. Uh, yeah, I like to think that our, you know, Lamp Black is, uh, you know, there's a conversation happening within the magazine. You know, and I think there is, I would say typically in any literary publication, there's a conversation because every author sort of, every text is different, but there's a, you know, there's definitely a, you know, it's been an opportunity for us to, to have that sort of global conversation between know black writers and then for you to have that experience of reading it and also sort of coming away you know feeling like you you've learned a little bit about you've learned obviously about another writer you know we definitely were really excited about featuring up-and-coming writers you know from the diaspora so yeah it's it's been like i said we have a, a few writers in our next issue who are based on the continent based in europe obviously based in the u.s it's fun it's exciting and it's good to get the different aspects of experience because we're like all over the place. You could have been raised poor or wealthy, or I met, and he was my professor at UCLA, and he was a drummer. And drumming to certain cultures in Africa is royalty. So he came from a different, it was really nice to see the different variety because we don't, we're not introduced to that that often. Now I want to know about you. You're writing a novel. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm also writing a novel. Um you know, when I when I have the time to to get back to it, you know, here and there I'm writing writing a novel about you know, I don't I don't want to talk too much about it, but is it fiction? It's fiction, yeah. It's it's um it's a fictional novel take place um in nineteen seventies Harlem and it's about uh the relationship between a young man from from Cameroon and his uh, black roommate. There's actually a cultural shock there. Oh no, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There, there's there. Yeah, there's there's cultural shock, but there's also, um, you know, I, I'm I'm really, you know, my my parents came to the U.S. in the '70s in New York, and so I've always sort of been fascinated about, you know, the that first encounter, and and it's not a story that I have. That I know too much about, you know, outside of reading about first similar encounters in, in other fiction or nonfiction, but I, you know, I, I've always sort of been fascinated and curious about what those first encounters are like, especially because the '70s, especially in Harlem, were, you know, some some interesting times politically, economically, ripe for a lot of tension, but also a lot a lot of opportunity for building solidarity between. People who look the same, but are, you know, in terms of the relationships of this country are poles apart. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, I've, I've always been, you know, someone who was obviously born here and sort of being, quote unquote, African-American, but was, was raised, you know, with not that, you know, that, that legacy, you know, that I think a lot of people of color have in this country, which is brutal. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think, you know, 
on my parents' side, there's another legacy that was, you know, also you could say somewhat brutal. But, you know, so it, it, it's a way for me to sort of address that as well at the gap, but also of, of the uh, possibilities for learning about each other, but also just solidarity and figuring out how we got to this point. You know, so, so, so my, my novel sort of gets into that, deals with some, some larger topics as well. I won't go too, into no, too much. We, we don't want to give away the, the plot. <laughs> no, it's not even so much the plot, but I don't want to get, you know, like you said, it's not a political <laughs> podcast. So I don't want to get into, into politics and talking about big issues. But, but that, that to me is, 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 I think, at the heart of this novel. You know, it's about masculinity and the relationship between immigrants in the 70s, which I think the large majority, they started sort of coming in the 60s and 70s. Uh, so sort of post-independence, but also, you know, at a time like the 70s in New York and Harlem where there was a lot happening. I don't know why I flashed the, the Harlem Renaissance, but I think the Harlem Renaissance was, was at that time or earlier? Yeah, no, the, 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 it was, I think it started slightly earlier, but obviously, yeah, there was, there was you know, the Harlem Renaissance. Um, you know, this is sort of post-civil rights movement, but there was also, you know, the sort of drug epidemics in, in Harlem and Politically, you know, just I think being there's also a lot of beauty, you know, in, in the '70s, Harlem and you're in New York City, you know, and this this book takes place in the jazz club, Harlem in the '70s, primarily in, in the coat check room of a jazz club where the protagonist works. So, yeah, so so jazz is is also, you know, or that that space, you know, that music and and jazz and that space is is, is important to this novel. Is there anything, which I'm really looking forward to reading that, is there anything you would like to say to the audience that you feel they should know either about publishing or about Lamp Black or about writing? Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, Poets and Writers are going to be launching two more editions of Mapping the Maze in the fall. So one in September and one in November, if I wasn't clear about this. But Mapping the Maze is a, it's a workshop that um, helps writers understand the publishing process and chart their path to, to publication. So the workshop, we invite agents, book editors, literary magazine editors, and writers to talk to participants about the publishing process, you know, from, you know, each obviously has their own angle. And it's uh, usually a three or four day workshop. We've been experimenting with the format, but so we'll be launching those again in the, uh, in the fall, two more editions. So there's a space on our website. If you sign up for a newsletter, you can sort of stay informed about uh, when we release the dates for that. You know, as far as Lamp Black is concerned, like I said, will be our next issue will come out in, I believe, late September. Um, so definitely recommend you check that out. We're at lampblacklit.com. Please check us out. Like us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Follow us there if you'd like. And as far as me personally, I mean, I'll, I have a book coming out in translation next year. It's uh, Jean d'Amérique, a Haitian playwright, poet, but his debut novel came out in March of this year. Uh, and I've translated that for other press. So that'll be coming out in the spring of next year. Don't have a title for it yet, but you should check him out if you read French. His name is Jean d'Amérique, John of America, if you want to translate it later. <laughs> Yeah, he's a brilliant writer. The book in French is called uh, Soleil à Coudre, so A Sun to be Stitched or Sewn. It's a very beautiful book, very poetic. Obviously, he's, he's a poet, so but the book is beautiful. His language is beautiful. 
I won't say too much about the book, but yeah, it's coming out in translation uh, next year with other press. So I was really excited to to work on that project. Other projects are forthcoming as well. For people out there, I actually took the course Mapping the Maze, which is now the name of it, and it was super informative. And if you have the opportunity to take the course, I would definitely suggest it. It was extremely helpful for me. And I wanted to thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for, for the invitation and for giving me the opportunity to, to speak. Pleasure talking to you. I took the course and I was very impressed. So I'm like, I got to get him on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. thank you, everyone out there. Sign up for Poets and Writers and follow Terry Kehu. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Poetic Resurrection Podcast. Available on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, and many other podcast platforms. Please visit us and subscribe to our newsletter at PoeticResurrection.com for the latest information and updates. 